thought it'd be appropriate this morning to perhaps say just a couple of words with regard to the trellis and the vine. We were occupied for more than a week with Colin and Jackie Marshall, and they spoke among us a number of times, some publicly and some privately with the elders and staff, and it was really a delightful time that we had together with them. So maybe just a couple of words to try to close that out a little bit, and you're thinking, well, so what happens now after all of this? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. There are some very simple things that he brought to us that we can surely implement immediately. I won't put you on the spot, but like reading Romans 15 in anticipation for this morning's message. So that would be something that we could do immediately and and implement and would increase the effectiveness of the preaching. So that would be something we could do. We could also pray before we came into worship service and just think about how when we come together that we come to serve and not be served. So that's a kind of a simple idea that we could take and and implement and I'm sure there'd be various ways that that would show itself. We could implement the one-to-one Bible reading idea with different people in the church or neighbors or maybe co-workers Just an opportunity to get together, open the scriptures and read it a little bit and talk about what we've read. So that's another simple idea we can implement. And you know, what's interesting is none of these require programs. Did you notice that? None of these ideas require building any kind of structure or program or administration or anything. They're just simple ideas that we can implement. So we can do all of that. Beyond that, there were some very, very thought-provoking issues that he brought up with us and those are going to take a lot more study a lot more prayer a lot more conversation and so yeah i don't think anything serious is going to happen immediately but you can be in prayer about that as to how we can become more effective as disciples making disciples so that's something else that we can implement right away for those of you who had missed the either of the sunday mornings or the wednesday evening session we actually have dvds of those they are available in the library to check out we ask you not to make copies of them they are copyrighted material but he was gracious enough to leave with us a copy for our library that people could check out and 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 view on your own so if you missed it because you were involved in child care or some other thing or you just were not able to be here and you'd like to catch up on it particularly last sunday mornings at at nine o'clock, that was a really fine presentation of the ministry of the pew. So if you missed it, you can check it out in the library. I believe it's available in Blu-ray or regular DVD. How's that? Because we aim to please. <laughs> Several years ago, my family gave me as a gift a book entitled Endurance. Endurance. The New York Times called it, and I quote, one of the greatest adventure stories of our times, close quote. It is the account of the 1914 failed attempt by Ernest Shackleton and a crew to transverse the South Pole, to become the first to do that. It was a fascinating attempt that they made. 
Forty-five days into their journey, their wooden vessel became stuck in the pack ice. And over time, as the ice closed around it, the timbers of that very sturdy vessel were fractured and the ship went down. The crew and the, the explorers, and I believe there were about 56 men, were forced to live on the pack ice for two months. They were hoping the ice would eventually drift where they would come in contact with land, but it, it never did. And as their supplies ran low and, and winter was setting in here in Antarctica, they realized they must do something. And so they got into the three lifeboats that they had rescued from their vessel and they set out on a five-day journey across open water to a place called Elephant Island. They arrived at Elephant Island only to realize that it was inhospitable, that they could not survive the winter there, and it was so far removed from the shipping lanes that the chance of them being discovered and rescued before they ran out of food and supplies was not a risk they could take. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and so Ernest Shackleton and five others set out in a 22-foot lifeboat to make an 870-mile journey across some of the most dangerous ocean in the world to reach a place called South Georgia Island. There on South Georgia Island was a, a whaling village, a whaling station, where they knew that they could find supplies and hopefully a vessel to return and pick up those that had been left behind on Elephant Island. 22-foot lifeboat, single mast and sail. They decked it over partially with some scrap wood and covered it with some canvas and set out through what is known as the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage is from Cape Horn, the tip of South America and Antarctica, and it flows through there and the current generally runs to the northeast in the direction of St. George or South Georgia Island rather. As they set out in this most dangerous part of the oceans of this planet, they encountered waves that commonly reached the height of 90 feet. Winds gust regularly 150 to 200 miles an hour in that part of the world. There are no major land masses to break up the effect of the wind on the ocean, and so the waves actually transverse the globe with nothing to stop them. And thus they build and they build and they build in height. The distance between the crest of one wave to another on average is one mile. And these waves move at about 30 knots. This little crew set out in their vessel in an attempt to reach safety. It was overcast the 16 days of their voyage overcast and blowing snow, prevailing temperatures approaching zero as the wind blew off of Antarctica. The waves regularly washed over the vessel and thus they must constantly bail it to keep it afloat. They had weighed it down with 2,000 pounds of rock in an attempt to try to stabilize this small craft in that kind of heavy sea. They had no rain gear. They were dressed in the woolen gear that they had expected to use as they 
transverse the pole. And so as their woolen gear became wet and the prevailing wind temperatures, ice built up all over them and all over the vessel. And frostbite began to eat away at their flesh and to sap their hope. Their navigator, a man by the name of Frank Worsley, was unable to take any kind of consistent readings to chart their progress because of the inclement weather, the overcast, and the mountainous waves. There were only a few times he was able to get out and see stars and to use his sextant to get sightings and adjust their bearings. So for 16 days, they forged on. Only by the providential grace of God did they actually arrive at South Georgia Island. The end of the 16 days they arrived there, they arrived on the wrong side of the island, and thus they had to transverse the mountains of the island in order to reach the whaling station and to get help. It's really an incredible story. Shackleton was able to round up a vessel and to go back and rescue his, the rest of his company and crew and get them all off of Elephant Island. And actually, they did not lose a man in that entire journey. So why do I tell you this story? Why do I tell you this story? I tell you the story because I am absolutely amazed by the seamanship of Frank Worsley. There are many heroes in this story, to be sure. But I am amazed at the ability of that man to navigate with so few opportunities to take his bearings, and yet he was able to essentially find what amounted to a cork in the ocean and for them to land safely. He kept his bearings in the most difficult circumstances of life. And I think that's a tremendous lesson, a spiritual lesson for us. In the ongoing press of life, it is Far too easy to lose our way, to lose our bearings, to lose our sense of direction, to forget where we're going, where are we headed, what is this all about? And so this morning from Romans chapter 15, and you can go ahead and open up there, Romans 15, page 1138, by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are a few Bibles available to you, they're in the pew rack in front of you, if you're on an aisle, they're under your seat. Take one out and open it up to page 1138. We arrive in the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. By the grace of God this morning, we will begin in verse 14 and we will finish the chapter. And that snapped up a few heads, didn't it? You think it's impossible, don't you? Oh, ye of little faith. Right? Alagapastoi, ye little faith men. Okay. This is an amazing text that we have before us, beginning in verse 14. Paul is closing out his letter to the church at Rome. Really, from now on until the end of the letter, it's, this is just the closing section. All of the heavy theology and the application of that theology, he has finished. So he's now winding down this letter. And so as we as we look at this beginning in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, this winding down process, I just want to dip into it a little bit and draw out four lessons for you this morning. 
On the back of your bulletin, I have those lessons listed for you. Four rather simple lessons that will help us take our bearings and realign our priorities. Four lessons to help us take our bearings and realign our priorities with regard to the Christian life. Let me read the text for you. Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason... I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints." so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So four lessons that I want to just draw out of this lengthy section, this biographical section, autobiographical section from the Apostle Paul. The first lesson is this. It's drawn from verses 14 and 15, and it is that even mature Christians need to be challenged by the gospel. Even mature Christians need to be challenged by the gospel. 
Now, Paul had never visited the church at Rome. He had never been there. But he had a very good understanding of their situation. He was able to write to them with a great amount of familiarity with what was going on there. And we suspect that that's probably because of his correspondence with two of his most trusted friends who are now ministering there in Rome. And I just turn you over to chapter 16 and verse 3 just to see that. Where he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They appear several times in the book of Acts. They pop in and out of the life of the Apostle Paul. So perhaps from correspondence from them or others that the Apostle Paul knew, and we'll deal with that when we get to 16, he had a good idea of what was going on in the church. He understood what the Roman church was all about. What were their problems? What were their struggles? And indeed, he speaks here in an amazing way because he speaks about their maturity, their maturity. And that may be a little bit surprising for us. I mean, after, after we've gone to the length and the depth of this great book of Romans, we might be tempted to think that this was a very immature church. This church was absolutely laced with problems, and that Paul had to write to them in such excruciating detail to straighten out their problems. But indeed, that's not true. It's not true at all. This Church was not a weak church. This was a strong church. This was a church made up of mature believers. That's exactly what Paul says here in verse 14. Exactly what he says. In fact, here in verse 14, he gives three just little simple phrases that, that express what it, excuse me, what it means to be mature as a believer and to be part of a mature church. It's fascinating. Look with me, verse 14. He says he's convinced, by the way, do you see that? He's convinced of this truth, that they are first full of goodness, that they are full of goodness. The word could be translated uprightness in conduct because that's what it's referring to. It's referring to their ethics. It's referring to their morality. He's saying that that I am convinced that you are that you are upright in your conduct, that morally you're full of righteousness and uprightness. This is not a church that is racked by immorality or ethical problems. This is a church of people following Christ that are living an upright life before one another, before God, and before the watching world. Beyond that, verse 14, he says, I'm convinced that you are filled with all knowledge. You see that? Filled with all knowledge. That is, intellectually, they were complete in their spiritual understanding. They had a very good knowledge of God and his work and the work of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul, remember, and I told you this uh, four years ago, maybe once between that time, but the, the, the book of Romans is absolutely laced with Old Testament citations. It is absolutely laced with them. And so this church knew their Bible. Maybe I can say it that way. They knew their Bible. They were, they were well-versed in the Scriptures. And so they understood how a person is made right with God through Jesus Christ. This was not new to them. They were filled with the knowledge. They were, they were comprehensive in their understanding of the Christian faith. Third, verse 14, it says, they were able also to admonish one another. Do you see it? Nuthateo, we get the, the, the idea of nuthetic counseling from that Greek verb, and it, it speaks of instruction or warning or, or teaching. 
spiritual truth to someone. So, so functionally, if I can say it that way, they were approved workmen who knew how to rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. They were able to instruct, to teach, to warn one another regarding the Christian life and doctrine. They were competent to counsel, if I could say that. And the source of that counsel, of course, would come from the Scriptures. They were well-versed in the Scriptures. So morally, full of uprightness, intellectually comprehensive in their understanding of spiritual truth, and functionally able to teach or competent to counsel one another. So this is quite a church, quite a church. And Paul says he's, he's convinced of this reality for them. And yet to this very mature group of believers, Paul writes his most detailed and his most comprehensive presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he do that? Why is it to the church at Rome that he writes this amazing letter? Why such a detailed presentation to people who are already spiritually in a very strong place? Why does he do that? Well, the answer to that question is that we are never too mature for the gospel. It's as simple as that. No matter where we are on the the spiritual journey that Christ has set us upon, you and I are never too mature for the gospel. We don't ever move beyond the gospel. It's not things we leave behind. It's not that which saves us and then we leave it behind for other truth that enable us to live in accordance with the will of God. No, it is the gospel that saves us and it is the gospel in which we live and move and have our being. And so to a very mature church, it is very logical to give them the most detailed presentation of the gospel to be found anywhere in the New Testament. The gospel is the spiritual air we breathe. It is the spiritual food we eat because it points to the grace of God in Jesus Christ who has saved us and is saving us to the glory of God. But as Paul writes to them here, notice he says, I've written very boldly to you on some points. You see that? So Paul, Paul says, you're in good shape, but I, but I need to call your attention to some really strong meat. You're mature, and so it's, it's time for you to have some strong meat. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 says, solid food or strong meat is for the mature. For those who are weak in their faith, we don't give them the good stuff. We don't give them the steak. We save that for those who've got a full set of choppers. And you are ready to really dig in here into a T-bone steak. And Paul gives them some, doesn't he? Remember Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11? Do you remember that? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 where Paul plays out for us the implications of the gospel with regard to Jew-Gentile relations. And he speaks there about those deep truths about predestination and election and God's sovereign choosing of Israel and his sovereignly setting them aside and and their response of hardness to the gospel and that someday he will bring the people back in and, and their eyes will be open and they will repent and they will turn to receive their Messiah. Deep truth, solid food for the mature, Paul lays out for them. He goes beyond that. When beginning in chapter 12 and really running all the way through to the, to the half of chapter 15, ending in verse 13, and he talks about Christian ethics. 
And he teases out from gospel truth the profound implications of the gospel with regard to Christian ethics. How we're to live one with another. How do we love one another? How we're to respond to civil authorities? How are we to respond to those who persecute us and, and hate us and despitefully use us? All of those things he teases out. How are we to live together in a, in a body where there are strong and weak? And how does that all work? Paul teases out all of those implications of the gospel, the, the very bold points that he wrote to them about. Beloved, Romans is a letter for a people who love the scriptures, are growing in Jesus Christ, and are doctrinally grounded. Doctrinally grounded. When I started preaching here eight years ago, one of my largest concerns was where to begin. Where do you begin? So much you want to say, where do you begin? And on the counsel of some older and wiser men, we chose to begin in the Gospel of John. We didn't immediately dive into the book of Romans. And the reason we didn't dive into the book of Romans is that we as a congregation were not ready for it. I, as a preacher, was, I was too inexperienced, too immature, too, too unable to communicate the depth and profundity of the gospel as laid out in the book of Romans. I needed, I needed some work. <laughs> and we needed work to be able to learn and sit still and think hard and work it through. So we began in John's gospel. It was a great time together. I don't know, some of you may remember this, but we lengthened the sermon time. Do you remember that? We used to only preach about 35 minutes, maybe 40 at the most. And we pushed it up. We extended it by another 10 to 15 minutes or whatever I can get away with. <laughs> so we, we lengthened the preaching time. And, and that takes time because we live in a world that is media saturated, sound bites, Everything has to be reduced to simple slogans, just a few words. And now we come here and we have to sit and we have to look at a book and we have to listen to somebody talk and we have to engage our brains for almost an hour. And that takes time. That's not easy. That is something that is developed. That's an appetite that is developed over time. And so by the grace of God, we have developed that kind of appetite where we can dig into the book of Romans, take four years to go through it, and by the grace of God, be profoundly changed by the truths contained therein. Well, we're almost done this book. And I have been thinking long and hard, where do we go now? What to do? What to do? Mm. Actually, I have known for a very long time what I want to do next. We will take a break from preaching expositorily through a book. We'll, we'll take a break for a little while. Probably after the first of the year or so, it is my desire and intention to go to the Gospel of Matthew. So it is to go to the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason I want to go to the Gospel of Matthew is because the Apostle Paul, all through the book of Acts, as he is preaching the Gospel, it is called the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel of the Kingdom. And we use that word kingdom a lot. You know, we're building the kingdom, you know, and all of these kinds of things. But I'm not persuaded that we all mean the same thing when we use that word. And in fact, I'm not persuaded that we even biblically understand what that word and concept is all about. Do you know in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 4 and beginning in verse 17, when it introduces the preaching ministry of Jesus, the very first things that Matthew said are this. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I just want to leave you with a conundrum. You can think about this. Nowhere does Jesus ever define the kingdom for them. It is merely announced that he is preaching it. So one must have had some pre-understanding of the kingdom. It is my hope and desire that for all of us, we would be able to lock in and understand exactly what Jesus was talking about to those Jews 2,000 years ago. So even mature Christians need the gospel, and we need it all the time. Second lesson. Second lesson, we never retire from ministry. We never retire from ministry. Sorry, guys. You may have heard this said before, that the word retirement is not in the Bible. Anyone ever heard that? Retirement's not in the Bible. And actually, that's true. But I did, you, I did look, and the word retire is in the Bible, at least in the New American Standard, and it appears once. It appears once. It's in Numbers chapter 8, verse 25. You can check it out on your own. The word retire is there. And it is spoken of the Levitical priesthood. At the age of 50, they were to retire, which means that I should have been out of here a long time ago. At age 50, Moses commanded them to retire, but it was to retire from a very specific task. And that is the carrying of the implements of the tabernacle. It was shouldering the weight of the tent and all of the accoutrements that had to be carried around in the desert. At age 50, what Moses said is, hey, you guys are too old for this. This is young man's work. So get some 25-year-olds and let them muscle it around. Okay? And you guys, you live among the people and you continue to preach to them the word of God. So, yes, the word retire is there, but unless your ministry is schlepping around heavy stuff, okay, there's no retirement in the Bible. It's not there. And how contrary to our American society is that? Boy, are we locked into this thing. Isn't this the American dream? Work 40 years save and scratch and put it away so that we can live 20 more years without any, without having to work. I mean, when you boil it all down, that's the American dream. How obscene. How obscene to think that life is all about accumulating enough wealth that you can live like a king for 20 years. That is one who doesn't have to work. Beloved, that's not the way the world operates. The world has never operated like that. It is only in a little bubble of time that you and I used to live in, if I may say that. Used to live in that such things were even possible. Only a few were able to become so wealthy that they could live without having to work the rest of their lives. And yet, for us, it is locked into the American dream. This is what we want. But listen, we never retire from ministry. And when I, re when I reflect here on what we read in the end of chapter 15, I am, I am absolutely struck by the Apostle Paul's undiminished desire to continue to do ministry. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The things this man had accomplished would be enough for most of us to sit back in our rocking chair. I better not do that. My back's bothering me. And, and survey our success. Let's just get the lawn chair out 
and look over the things we've accomplished. But not for the Apostle Paul, not at all. Take a look with me again. Verses 23 and 24. Paul says, having no further place for me in this region, I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain. Whenever I go to Spain. Paul's not finished the work of the ministry. He says up in verse 19 that by the grace of God, I have had a powerful ministry roundabout. The idea is like an ark from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Now, Illyricum is northern Albania, most of Yugoslavia, today's language. So the Apostle Paul is saying from, from the origin of the church in Jerusalem all the way up into Europe, I have had a, a powerful ministry. God has done amazing things. We have planted a lot of churches. I should retire. Collect my pension. Just get on the, the circuit and travel around, maybe give a few speeches or something. And he says, no, not at all. Not at all. He's planning for additional ministry. Do you see that? That's the key here. He's planning for additional ministry. He's not retired. He's not checked out. He's not saying, I've done it, done it good enough. Not only is he planning for it, he's, he's persevering in his plans. Verse 22, he says, for this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. What's hindered him? Well, it's, it's planting the churches that I've had to plant in, in Turkey and, and in, the, in the eastern part of Europe. My, my first three missionary journeys, they've, they've hindered me in a sense because I've wanted to move on. I wanted to keep pushing. I want to push to the, to the western limits of the Roman Empire. Pastor Vince and I were talking this week about this whole concept, and, and it occurred to me that the church at Corinth, and with all of its problems and, and Paul's repeated trips back there to try to resolve things, at least, in my opinion, at least four trips that he makes back to Corinth to straighten it out, in a sense, hindered him from further ministry. The church, not able to get its act together, held him back for a while. And so he says, I've been hindered. I've been delayed. About 10 years, by the way, it took to accomplish those three missionary journeys. Now, we don't know whether Paul ever made it to Spain. There is some question about that reality. I, I'm persuaded he did. I'm persuaded he did. But there's not... There is some ancient evidence that kind of indicates that. But even assuming he did, it was probably at least six more years that he would have to wait before he could get there. Because he's going to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to be imprisoned, do you remember? He'll be imprisoned in Caesarea, and then from there he'll appeal to Caesar, and he'll go to Rome, and he'll be two years in Rome. So it's about six more years before he could have ever made it, if indeed he did go. So he's still going to have to wait. He's going to have to persevere in the plan. He's not retired. He's not checking out. He's not laying back. He's planning. He's persevering. And third, he's pressing. He's pressing for help to complete his plans. You see it in verse 24. He says, for whenever I go to Spain, I, I hope to see you in passing. And here's the phrase. And to be helped on my way there by you. Let me translate that for you. I need money. I need money. I need logistics. 
I need you to get on board with what we're doing here. I need you to reach into your wallets and I need you to dig deep and I need you to pull it out and I need you to support me in this effort to proclaim the gospel to the western extreme of the Roman Empire. So I'm coming to you in Rome and I, and I want to come. He expresses back in chapter 1 and in verse 12. He says, I want to be an encouragement. I want to encourage you. I want to be encouraged by you while we're among you. But don't miss out. It's not just that I want to shake your hands and and break some bread together and slap each other on the back and say, well done. I want money. I'm a missionary. I need it. And so I'm coming there for you and impressing you in a gentle sort of way, of course. I am pressing you to fund the missionary endeavor. We shouldn't be embarrassed to ask God's people for money. I just want to straight up say it. We should not be embarrassed to ask God's people for money to accomplish God's work of mission. Do you understand that? If the gospel is really true, and if this world is passing away, and that if the only opportunity that a person will ever have to hear the gospel, to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be reconciled to their creator is here and in this life, then we should never be embarrassed to ask for money in support of mission. Never. Never. And yet, people ask God's people for money all the time for many other things. But somehow we're embarrassed to ask about this. Paul was not embarrassed. He, he was pressing on them. Now he did it gently, I admit. I believe, he, by the way, in the following verses, he's going to give them an illustration so that they can understand exactly what he's talking about. I'll point it out here in a minute. But he's pressing on them to support this endeavor. Get on board and let's push this gospel as far as we can because the time is short. We don't know when Christ will return. He didn't know, and we don't know either. We don't know either. So we never retire from ministry. Third lesson. Third lesson. Spiritual blessings create material obligations. Spiritual blessings create material obligations. Beginning in verse 25. It says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been very pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. Isn't that an interesting word? They are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. That is a fascinating principle. Fascinating. Paul's third missionary journey was essentially given over to the collection of a massive amount of money to take on a relief effort back to the poor in Jerusalem. So he traveled about the Gentile churches, pushing on them to open up their purses and to give for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, because Paul says that it's out of Jerusalem that the church has birthed. 
It is out of the Jewish scriptures that we come to know the Jewish Messiah. It is Jewish apostles who have brought the message to you Gentile believers. And so you have eaten and drunk deeply of the riches of Judaism. And so you are obligated to pour back in materially for those who have blessed you so spiritually. That's the principle. There's a basic spiritual principle here. We have, a, we have an obligation to provide materially for those who have benefited us spiritually. We have an obligation, I'll say it again, an obligation to provide materially for those who have blessed us spiritually. That, by the way, is woven into the very fabric of the Old Testament. This is not some new idea. The priesthood ate from the sacrifices of the people. Isn't that true? It was woven right into their sacrificial system. This is God's design for the people of God. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here out of this section, and I'll take you to another place, with regard to spiritual blessings creating material obligations. The first observation that I want to show you is is that it wasn't done as a burden. It wasn't a burden. It was an obligation, a moral obligation, not a legal obligation, but a moral obligation. But it wasn't burdensome. The reason I say that is, first, look at verse 26. It says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased. Do you see that? They have been pleased to do this. Pleased. Look over verse 27. Yes, Paul says, he emphasizes it. They were pleased to do this. This wasn't, this wasn't hard for them. This wasn't Paul throwing around his apostolic weight and pushing and pressuring on them. They were pleased to do it. Turn with me, by the way, to the right. Let's just kind of fill this out a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, page 1159. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where we have a little bit fuller narrative to speak of what Paul is referring to here in Romans. 2 Corinthians 8, page 1159, beginning in verse 1. Now keep that thought in mind that Paul says they were pleased, Macedonia and Achaia, which, by the way, there are only two provinces in what we now call Greece. Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south. So it's all of Greece. All of Greece was pleased, Paul says twice, to make a contribution. Chapter 8, verse 1. Writing to the recalcitrants in Corinth. Now, brethren, the rich recalcitrants in Corinth, I might add. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that is the northern churches, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Do you see that? Of their own accord. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. That is stunning. That is stunning. They begged to be given the opportunity to give for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And these were poor churches. These are the northern churches. This is the church of Philippi. It's the church of Thessalonica where they are under, they are under affliction. They are in poverty themselves. 
And they say, listen, pass the plate again. Pass the plate again. Pass the plate again. I want to give. I'm begging you, verse 4, for the opportunity to be able to do this. It would be a favor to be able to participate in this kind of thing. It's not a burden. That's an incredible statement. An absolutely incredible statement. And Paul writes this to the church at Corinth because they're having some troubles digging in. Wealth can be enslaving. It can be enslaving. And the church at Corinth was wealthy. Corinth was the seaport that separated east-west. They collected tolls all day long. Ships going east and west, back and forth, across the Roman Empire. And Corinth, the people in Corinth had their hand out on both directions. So the money is flowing in. They're rich, and yet they're recalcitrant. They're having troubles. And it is their poor northern neighbors that Paul says are begging to take part in this. Begging. Why? Verse 5. And this, this, this begging is not as we had, we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. There's a key right there. Generosity follows personal dedication. Generosity, mark this down. This is a principle for you and for me. Generosity follows personal dedication. When we are personally dedicated to Christ, when we see the work of Christ as the greatest endeavor there is, then we will willingly, we will be pleased for the opportunity to participate in it. It will not be a burden at all. If you find sometimes that you struggle in your stewardship, the place to look is not your checkbook. The place to look is your heart. It's to look at your heart. These people were committed to Christ. And so it was no problem to give to the work of Christ. Back to Romans, because I want to point out something else for you that just stands out here for me. And it's like a red light screaming. Verse 26. By the way, Achaia came around. Looks like Corinth came around. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution. A koinonia. A koinonia. The Greek word, koinonia, we translate as fellowship. Now, isn't that interesting? For the Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to be in fellowship among the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, that's an interesting thought. We don't normally think about money as expression of fellowship, do we? We tend more to think about paying a bill or an obligation. But Paul says this gift, and I think what he's communicating here is, is that this gift establishes a close relationship between the Gentile church and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. It establishes their koinonia, their fellowship, their closeness in Christ. And you know, when you think of it that way, it's not so hard to understand, now is it? It's easy to say, I love you. It's harder to say, I love you, and here's 10 bucks. My last 10 bucks. Right? So it establishes their fellowship. Very, very interesting to think about. That takes us, by the way, over to the fourth lesson. 
We're just kind of ransacking this passage a little bit, I realize. But the fourth lesson that jumps out for me is that prayer is a means to share the ministry. Verses 30 to 32, prayer is a means to share the ministry. Verse 30, Paul says, now I urge you, I urge you, very strong word. I urge you, he says, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That is, by our commonality in Christ and by the work of the Spirit. When it says the love of the Spirit, it's not the Spirit's love for us. It's our love for one another that the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, causes to flow out of our hearts. Because of our common commitment to Christ and the work of the Spirit in our heart that has produced love one for another, I urge you to strive together with me, you see at verse 30, in your prayers to God. Strive together with me. Paul is saying, what I'm not asking for is a quickly mouthed and quickly forgotten prayer. What I'm asking for you to do is to agonize with me. To wrestle with me. This verb is a very fascinating verb. Soon agonizomai. Agonizomai, you can hear the word agony in that verb. Soon, together with. Agonize together with me in prayer is what he's saying. Strive with me. Wrestle with me. Pray earnestly, a simplified form of the verb used over in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Work hard together with me in prayer. Why? Why do we have to agonize together? Why do we have to wrestle? Why do we have to strive? Why is it such hard work? Why can't a simple prayer, we just mouth it, pray for me, okay, blah, and then, you know, we're on with it. Why is that not enough? Well, it's because of the world of flesh and the devil. It's as simple as that. It's the world of flesh and the devil. It's constantly at war with us, discouraging us. Hindering plans. So Paul is saying, strive together with me. There's a lot more ministry to be done here, and I need you. I need you to be with me. And the way you can do it, the way you can share the ministry, not everybody can go. You can't come to Spain. Maybe some of you will come to Spain, but all of you are not going to go to Spain. But those of you who are stay behind with the stuff, you serve on the front line in prayer. You wrestle along with me. Gospel prayer. That's what he's talking about. By the way, what would Paul pray for? I've got to write a book. WWPPF. What would Paul pray for? Right. Okay, here we go. It could be a bestseller, you know. But you've got to be limited to 80 thin pages. Because people don't have the attention span to read a real book. But that's another sermon. Okay, here we go. So, what would Paul pray for? Verse 31. Gospel prayer. That I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. I am headed to Jerusalem. I am bringing a massive monetary gift from the Gentile churches, from the Greek churches. And I am bringing it for the relief of the poor believers in Jerusalem. But I have been warned by the Spirit along the way. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. I have been warned by the Spirit that I am going to suffer there. I know they want to kill me. They have been chasing me for 10 years. 
and they have run me out of one city after another. The Judaizers, they want to kill me, and I'm walking right into the hornet's nest. Pray with me. Shry with me. Wrestle with me. That God would deliver me from those who would kill me. That's gospel prayer. That's gospel prayer. Deliverance from unbelieving Jews. That's what he's talking about. The disobedient is the way they're characterized here. Disobedient to God. Second prayer request. That my pray with me, wrestle with me, agonize with me, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Interesting prayer request. Pray that when I get there and I, and I deliver the, the collection that we've received from the, from the Gentile churches and I, and I deliver it to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that the, the breach, the tear between Judaism and Christianity could be healed. That's what he's praying. He's saying that they understand why we've done this. It's out of a heart of love for them. We, we serve the same Christ. And we can't be divided over this. Pray with me that the financial gift will cement the Jew-Gentile relationship in the church together. Because I fear it's tearing apart. By the way, it tore apart. It tore apart. And us sitting here this morning are an illustration of that reality. We are in a predominantly Gentile church. Third, gospel prayer request. Verse 32. That I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your spirit. That when I come to you, you would minister to me, that you would strengthen me, and that you would give me the money and the logistics that I need to press on to Spain. That I would find refreshing rest in your company. Not that I would terminate my ministry there and retire in Rome. That's not what he's asking for. He's asking that when I come there, you will refresh my soul together in the great truths of the faith. And then you will give me enough silver and logistical support, whether it's ships and people and food to eat or whatever it is that I can press on to Spain. That's what I'm after. That's that's what's driving me. Now, may the God of peace be with you all, he says. Amen. This is gospel praying. Gospel pray. So I told you when we began, Frank Worsley only managed to get a, just a handful of readings with his sextant for those 16 days in which they journeyed from Elephant Island to St. Georgia. Or South Georgia, rather. Incredible. Incredible feat of navigation. Probably unequaled at least in modern times. But he made the most of what he had. He only got a few readings of the stars, but he made the most of what, what he had. He got him there. He got him there. Friends, we're, we are so much better off. So much better off. We don't get just an occasional 
glimpse of God, an occasional word from God. A, a, you know, once every few days, we might have opportunity to try to find out what God's doing and what he wants from us. We have the words of the living God available to us anytime we want. Anytime. And we have the privilege of, of gathering together as a body of believers and hearing the word of God exposited for us. We're so rich. We have such opportunity to take navigational points, to make course corrections, to check our bearings, to make sure we're on track. Well, we have four of them this morning, don't we? There's four opportunities to check ourselves this morning. And I know that at least one of them applies to every single one of us. At least one. Even mature Christians need to be challenged by the truths of the gospel. That is a reference point to check our lives. We never retire from ministry. We're never done until Christ calls us home. That's a reference point to check our lives. Spiritual blessings create material obligations. That's a reference point to check our lives. And prayer is the means by which we share the ministry one with another. That's another reference point by which we check our lives. God has given us a lot. And to whom much is given, much is what? Required. May God grant us the grace to process, to think upon, and to implement whatever corrections you or I need to make. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are your people, redeemed by the blood of your only begotten Son, our sin has been forgiven. We have eternal life. Not we will get it. We have it. We are in fellowship with you. Because of what you've done for us. And oh Lord, we love you. We love you more than anything. And yet, oh Lord, we find our, ourselves falling short sometimes. We don't live up, O oh Lord, to our best aspirations. We lose our bearings. We, we lose our focus. We let the things of this world somehow distract us or blind us or knock us off course. O oh Lord, it's a time like this when we, we hear these reminders, we see these reminders from your word that you graciously grant us the opportunity to make change. Father, I pray that you would enable us to do just that. Flood us, O Lord, with your grace. Strengthen us in the power of your Holy Spirit in the inner man. Enable us, Lord, not to have a set of rules. We've been set free in Christ. But to live in light of that freedom with a wholehearted, single-minded devotion to Him. 
May you bless us now. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We're dismissed.